Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I have to tell you, uh, for a long, long time, I've uh, desired to do something that I didn't know whether I would be capable to do it because others have tried to do it and they haven't done a very good job. And I, I was always disappointed when I would get on this subject because the material that I would read would always leave me disappointed and usually just about as disillusioned as I was before I picked up the book. It's been a burden in my life since I started my ministry in the early 80s. And it, it dealt with the question of why. Why do things happen the way they do? And where is God in my life, in the bad times? So about a couple of years ago, I, I decided I'm going to seek God. This is, a, this is not a topic that I'm an expert on, and I certainly don't have all the answers. But I said, God, it's troubling me so much that I feel like I have to get into this and start to search. And so I, I'm near... Well, probably a couple of months away from completion on, on this task, this book that I wanted to write. And I don't want you to think tonight for one minute that I'm here trying to advertise. I want to just share with you in the next few minutes my heart concerning this matter. And I, I'm, I thought, well, we're so accustomed to people not looking at notes when they preach and they just want to be spontaneous. But I thought I could try that. But as I wrote these words, I thought of each word. And each word fit into a place. So it's probably going to be different tonight than you're used to. But I have to share you, as I sat at my, my computer and I began to write and pray and seek God on the ish, this issue, what God led me into. I haven't really... Got a name, I think it was Brother Russ that was preaching the other day, and uh, something popped in my mind. And I, matter of fact, it's probably in this forward. I had to actually put it in the forward of this book. And it was this title it was Forsaken or For His Sake? Forsaken or For His Sake? So I, I may stop as I begin to read, and just we may just talk a little bit about some of these topics, but I, I hope you understand that uh, these words are put there in a specific order, and I, if I jump around, I'll miss the, some of the points. You know, as little children, it seems one of the very first words that we learned was, Why? It came right after the word no. As we grow older, it seems that we become instinctively more curious as to how things exist. Or, for that matter, even how they originate. This goes beyond the realm of just the physical elements of our life and into the circumstantial things of our life as well. For instance, why did I get sick? 
Why did my dog die? How come no one likes me? And of course, the list goes virtually on and on and on as long as time itself proceeds. Some questions have easier answers than others. For instance, as a child, I asked my dad, where does rain come from? There was an answer for this question as well as questions as to, and I think I asked this one too, where do babies come from? Uh, I have to be honest, most people prefer to answer the previous question more than the latter question. However, the questions such as to why people suffer or questions dealing with death are more difficult for us to understand. Now, you and I as a Christian, we often ask the questions in a religious arena. For instance, why does God allow evil when he's good? Have you ever heard that question before? Pretty popular question. Or this question, why do the righteous have to suffer? Now, looking inside your own mind, I'm sure that you have your own list of questions yet to be answered. Unfortunately, some questions never do receive an answer. Even as children, when I, we asked the question, why do our parents, often they would say, can you, hear, can you remember this? Because I said so. I remember S.G. Norris we're in a doctrine class up at ABI, and he was teaching on where the dead. Well, me and him really, really differed on the philosophy where the dead were. In this church, we preach that the dead are in the grave. But at ABI, they taught that there was a place called paradise and a place called hell. And you went to one or the other when you died. And I remember one day, um, he was quoting from a scripture that said, the dead know not anything, nor have they any knowledge. Remember that scripture? And I raised my hand in the class. I wasn't a very smart kid. I should have just been quiet. And I said, Brother Norris, I said, if the dead are alive, they don't know anything. And they don't have any knowledge, according to the scripture. And he looked and he said, will you sit down and just believe me? Now, that was sort of the way that my dad would talk to me at times when I questioned him about something he didn't want to explain. In other words, Brother Norris was really indirectly saying, my knowledge supersedes your knowledge. And even though you don't understand it now, you just have to believe me. What does that actually mean? It means that you have to trust my judgment as I compel you to live under my authority. That's what it means. I never really liked that answer, but learned to live with it because I realized my parents' scope of understanding and experience, it far exceeded mine. Now, the scripture boldly states this. 
The just shall live by faith. Faith by biblical definition, according to the scripture, is made of the substance of things not seen. So I want you to stop there for a second. I don't want you to miss this point. The substance of faith is made of things that you can't see. Have you ever heard anybody say that they will never believe in anything that they can't see or touch? They'll never have faith because to have faith, you have to have the substance of the invisible. Now, and it's evidenced by things hoped for. So we have substance and evidence in this verse. Faith has substance. Faith has evidence. Digest that a little bit. Faith is a substance of things not seen. It's evidenced by things we hope for. So when I talk about faith, I'm not talking about something mystical. It has substance and it has evidence. Well, the evidence of faith is hope. And in Romans, the eighth chapter, it says this, Romans 8 and 24. We are saved by hope. But hope that is seen, that's not hope. For what a man seeth, what doth he yet hope for? So my point in this is our walk with God, if it's based on faith, is not built upon what we see. It's built upon what we don't see. Faith then is not based solely on sight or substantial evidence. People who say they will not believe, I'm going to say this, I already said it once, but I'll say it again, anything that they do not see are virtually saying that their life is solely based on image. Now let's stop about and think about this for a minute. That's fine if you know the difference between a reality and a mirage. Sight is often deceiving. Things can be manipulated. Do you know that magicians make a living by controlling what people focus on and what they perceive? However, for a Christian, faith is a necessity for the essence of God is invisible. The God we serve is invisible. His essence, he is a spirit, is invisible. The Bible says that no man has seen God at any time. God is omnipresent. He's a spirit that fills all space. Now we got a glimpse of divinity through Christ as God robed himself in a body and then he became a man. Remember, however, that God was not only in that body of Christ, but while he was in the body, he still filled all space. I, re- I remember my kids, Amy and Jason, constantly bombarding me with questions about this and that. Questions that at the time in their life they would not be able to comprehend. They would ask me questions that even if I told them the answer, they wouldn't understand it. It was, they didn't understand the complexity. I would sometimes say in two, due time, when you're older, and you've said this too if you're a parent, when you're older, You'll understand. 
just enjoy the experience, or if it's a bad experience, I would like to remind you that things constantly change just as snowflakes. There there are no two days that are going to be exactly the same. So continue to learn and search for meaning, but also realize that some things cannot be comprehended at a given moment of your life. There are some things that you will not be able to comprehend at the moment that you're experiencing it. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13 and 12, Now I see through a glass darkly, but then, future tense, but then I will see face to face. I will at that time know even as I'm known. So what Paul is saying, there are things that I don't even understand. But the Lord has promised there is coming a time when I will understand. As we read God's word, the Bible, there will be times God will say, just like your own parents, son or daughter of mine, just believe me. Believe that I am he or just believe it for the very work's sake, Jesus said. So the work can go on. You'll understand farther down the line as your scope of life increases. As you grow in grace and truth and faith, there will, become, there will come a time when you will begin to understand what you don't understand now. Again, one day all questions will have a definitive answer. But till then, just keep following the map that you have and trust that it will get you to where you want to be. And of course, the map is the Bible. Some may say that God does not understand what I'm going through. He knows all the answers. How can he he feel what I feel? And he sees the end from the beginning. How can he experience what I'm experiencing? He sees the end from the beginning. God has never had to ask the question, why? Oh, hold on. Or has he? Okay, I'm going to take you into an area that maybe you haven't seen that yet, quite in that uh, view before. We all agree tonight that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Most theologians will agree on the point that Jesus Christ was God in flesh. As God... He was able to walk in water. He was able to calm a storm. He was able to raise the dead. He was able to prophesy of events yet to happen. He even prophesied of his own death. Now, Jesus lived only to 33 and actually a half years of age. Now, I don't know this for sure, but it's been surmised that his father died at an early age. And no doubt Jesus had to care for his mother his brother, and his sisters, being the eldest son. Now, of course, little's known of those early years, but you can rest assured, as a young man, he faced the same challenges of others that were on earth. What I'd like to focus on, however, is what happens at the end of his life. When we get into 
the area of the cross, we find a badly beaten Christ hanging on a wooden stake. Life is slowly ebbing from his body. The pain from the horrendous beating that he had just received, accompanied by the horrors and pain he felt as he hung upon the cross, no doubt was overwhelming. Even as he was dying, Jesus had mercy upon the thief that hung next to him and forgave him. But what I want to focus on is what he said just before he died. Just before he died, the Bible states, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, I'm reading from Matthew 27 and verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, and notice the next word, why? Why have you forsaken me? He had told the disciples earlier in Mark the 8th chapter, verse 31 through 38, that he was going to die. He knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to be betrayed by a friend. It was already recorded in the scripture. Why is he asking the question? Now, if you have the answer, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear it. I have a theory. But notice what he said before he died to his disciples. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why is he rebuking him? Be it far from you, Lord. We don't want you to die. We want you to be the king that's come to deliver Israel from the oppressors. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciple, Peter, he rebuked him, Peter, and said, Get behind me, Satan. He said, You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Look at that verse. Look at what just happened. Christ talked about suffering and death and betrayal. And Peter said, no, 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 no. And he's rebuked for it because he does not have the purpose of salvation in his mind. All he sees is not having to go through these terrible situations. That's just like us. We say, no, 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 no. Be it far from anyone to suffer. Be it far from, from people to have loss or pain. But Jesus might speak to us, but you do not see as I see what's transpiring and the ultimate goal of suffering. The ultimate goal of suffering. And as that verse says, you only have human concerns. Wow. All you, all you, have, you just have human concerns. You don't have spiritual concerns. All you're concerned about is the human side. 
That was quite a rebuke. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple. All right, we got that call? Must deny themselves and take up the cross, their cross, and follow me. What's your cross? If you want to be his disciple, what is the cross that you're going to pick up? It isn't the gospel. You're just delivering the gospel. The cross represented suffering, denial, endurance, and faithfulness to the end. Remember what Jesus said, he that endureth to the end. I'll tell you what, I never have to endure pleasure. Oh, this is so great, I wonder if I can make it. I never endure pleasure. I only endure dentist, pain, suffering. But the Bible says to the church, he that endures these things to the end, he'll be the one that's saved. Now let me go on. Jesus was familiar with the road to Calvary. It was the reason for his coming. It was the reason for the incarnation. However, knowing something, now think about this, knowing something and experiencing it are two different things. Stop for a second. You know something. But experiencing what you know is completely different than just knowing. Christ asked a question that he already knew the answer for. Just like we ourselves, when we encounter pain, heartbreak, and suffering, we do the same thing. We ask a question that we already have the answer for. Unless a seed fall into the ground and, and die... It shall not bring forth fruit. Now, I'm not, I don't believe that's talking about death. I mean, carnal death. I think that in repentance, I die out. I'm buried in the ground. But before I can live in newness of life and produce new fruit, the flesh has to die. And I, I know that when the Lord used this analogy, they knew what death was. And for someone that's been around death for a long, a long time, death is never pleasant. The process of death is not pleasant for anyone, the person that watches it or the person that goes through it. That's what repentance is. Oh, didn't that person have a beautiful repentance? It wasn't beautiful. He was snotting and crying and wrestling with his flesh. He was crying out to God. He was broken. God rejoices over one sinner that cometh unto repentance because the seed is placed in the ground. It's, it's died out to itself, but now it comes forth a new life. In your suffering, in the same way, you are dying out to your flesh. And after every period of suffering, you will notice a change in your spiritual being. I think about the, the man in Mark 9, 24. 
his son is doing crazy stuff, throwing himself in the fire, trying to kill himself. And he knows that Jesus has done great miracles and he knows that if somehow Jesus can do the miracle. He's seen the miracles that he's done. And Jesus asked him the question, do you believe that I can do this? And it says, immediately Boris' father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. The spirit believes, the flesh does not. I, Lord, I believe that you're a healer, but Lord, down inside there's something that says I don't believe. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. We're wrestling with flesh, even though we're filled with spirit. The flesh questions. The flesh becomes angry and denies God, but the spirit recognizes the work of the spirit. In 1972, I enlisted um, in the U.S. Army. Uh, I enlisted in the cause of a nation. I realized when I enlisted that the mission was greater than I was. It was greater than one man. And every soldier that enlists in the service realized this is the mission is greater than he is. Some died for the cause of freedom and others lived and countless people have asked this question. Those that have survived, I've heard it a number of times. Why was I spared and others died? Or why was I wounded when others were not? When Jesus cried out on the cross, there was no answer from heaven. There was no words of assurance. No angel came down to pull the nails from the cross or heal his many wounds. The sky became like night and the earth shook as the creator of all things was slain by his own creation. Now, understand that this is in a... In, this is just the opening to a book, and I write in this book, or in what I'm trying to deliver to people, I want to take you down a path you may have traveled many, many times before in your life. But maybe this time I may be able to show you things around you that you have missed along the way because of your pain and your oftentimes disillusionment with God, with life, and with other people. Can I ask you a question so I know I'm talking to the right, right crowd here? As a Christian, and don't raise your hand, but I'll be able to look in your eyes and be able to tell, have you ever been disillusioned? I think you have. Well, don't feel bad. About 1,200 years before the birth of Christ, there was a man named Gideon. The man lived at a time when the people of Midian oppressed God's people. I'm going to read from Judges 6. I want you to see the oppression. See if you can relate to some of the things that he's experiencing. 
the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years, this is Judges 6 and 1, I see it's up there, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts. They in caves and in strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded their country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and they did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was, it was impossible to count them on their camel or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to Lord, the Lord for help. Now notice the first verse and notice the sixth verse. They're in the situation because they had did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it says, the Lord gave them over to these oppressors. Now let me ask you the question, this question. Was the oppression worth the outcome? Because as we go back in Judges 6, God raises up a man. Revival is re restored in the land of Israel. They overcome the Midianites. And now the period of Judges continues and they serve God. Sometimes God in his mercy, sometimes in his love, he allows you to experience things in your life well, that will divert you from a terrible outcome. Gideon's existence, of course, was such that he barely got by and lived literally hand to mouth. It's Gideon that God approaches to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. It's, and it's quite interesting on how Gideon acts when approached by the God of all the earth and how God addresses Gideon at this first meeting. This guy's living hand to mouth. He's, he's at a wine press threshing wheat, hiding out from his enemies. He's hungry, he's disillusioned, and he has no hope. So that's how God finds him. And in Judges 6, verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the yoke in Orpha that belonged to Joash the Abzerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Do you like word pictures? Picture it. God sits down, and he watches Gideon thresh wheat on a wine press. He's watching them. Just like he does sometimes in your trials. He sits down, and he watches you until you see he's there. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> Pardon me? I like that. Pardon me, my Lord? Gideon replied, But if the Lord's with us, and here's that word again, why has all this happened to us? 
Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. He did not comprehend why Israel was suffering. His comprehension was darkened. The Lord doesn't even address him. The Lord ignores him. The Lord turned to him and said, I don't listen to unbelief. You want to turn God's ears off? Start accusing him falsely or start living and presenting unbelief. And he says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I will not acknowledge your statement. I will not even give it credibility. But notice, and Gideon goes on to say, I don't think I can make it. I don't think I can do this. I can't be what you want me to be. I'm not a mighty man of valor. Let me ask you a question. How do you know you're not? Who told you that you're not a mighty woman of valor and a mighty man of valor? Was it your flesh? That lying carnal spirit that inhabits your life? God says you can. Your flesh says you can't. Now who are you going to listen to? When God speaks, we say things like, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. My flesh does not say that. God views you and your situation completely different at times than you do. You see one thing. God sees uh, uh, something else. You see disaster. God sees opportunity. And Brother Cordell, in with our church, in our, with our lives for God, sometimes when we see disaster, what we should really be seeing is opportunity. Because life always comes up out of corruption out of death. Gideon sees himself as a coward, hiding as he tries to gain enough sustenance to live another day. God sees him completely different. See, God sees you and me as we can become, not as what we are at this moment. God sees Gideon as a mighty warrior because God sees him as what he's going to become. Faith changes the lamb into a lion. When you stop looking at the things you see and start living by faith, which has sustenance on what you don't see, and you start living with hope, it doesn't matter what you're enduring. You get the strength to ride over it. The meek becomes the bold aggressor. So what I'm saying is it's time to change your perception of yourself and start seeing the potential that God has for you if you will walk under the covering of faith. One of my focuses for writing this book is found in verse 13. It's the question of the ages, a question we've all asked ourselves at one time or another. Hey, pastor, if God's with this church or with my life, 
Why is all this stuff happening? Why are bad things happening to good people in our church? Why does it seem that everything in our lives is against us? Pastor, what have I done to incur the terrible events that are happening in my life? What part am I playing in this tragedy? Anyone that's ever dealt with someone that's grieving or lost a loved one, here's that question. What part did I play in this tragedy? Because the flesh does not see beyond the realm of what is visible. I want to take you on a journey that hopefully will allow you to step outside your perceptions of what is going on around you and experience the thrill of what can be if you will live the role that God has called for you to fill. In Gideon's case, he can choose to be a warrior or he can choose to remain a coward. He was a coward. He had a right perception of himself, but he needed to see what he could become if he would walk by faith through those things that were happening. In the story of Gideon, we learn that there can be a spiritual metamorphosis that takes place in the midst of struggle. I want you to see that. I was pulling out of the garage this morning. I had to run an errand. And here's one little caterpillar riding back the car. It's like crossing the long driveway like a desert. And I stopped and I looked at the little caterpillar. I said, don't worry, buddy. You got a cocoon that's coming up. And when you come out of struggle and turmoil and wrestling, you're going to fly and you won't have to crawl anymore. But I have to tell you, little caterpillar, it's not going to be fun. That little cocoon that you're going to make for yourself, you're going to be restricted inside of it and you're going to struggle. But after a time, you'll come out completely different than you were when you went in. Isn't that what trials do? We go into it, a little caterpillar, but each time we come out of a trial, our wings are bigger. And pretty soon as Christians, as we get older, Brother Matson, we're flying over our problems. We're not crawling underneath them. Yeah, we still have problems. We still have predators as a caterpillar or as a butterfly. But our perception is different than when we were crawling on the ground. Do you, do you want, do you like what you're looking at? Do you like the view? No, you don't. But through each trial and tribulation, you gain strength to fly above those circumstances that you don't understand. New dimensions of life come through the pain of delivery and suffering. Think about that. Life always comes through death. Guess when, when I was born, I, I was there, but I don't remember anything. Do you know what was going on in the room when I was born? <laughs> the women know. Ah! Screams! I was born amidst suffering. And I, my, my mom continued to have kids. 
you know, I don't understand. They say that childbirth is so bad, but these women keep getting pregnant. You know why? Because the joy that comes through suffering is always greater than the pain. Even though they get pregnant again and they know they're going to have pain again, they realize that the fruit of suffering is always greater and worth the pain. Can we adopt that in the way that we live? That the fruit of our, or the, 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 the pain of our suffering, the fruit that we will experience will always outweigh the pain of suffering. Your potential for growth, Brother Meyer, it's always superseded by struggle. It's always superseded by struggle. There's always hardship. You take the great men of God, you look into their past, they weren't born great. They went through many hardships and struggles to become what they were. And of course, we know that Gideon became a warrior, he was meant to be, and through God's direction and his obedience and bravery, he walked through a door that everybody else in Israel had avoided from the terrible oppression that they were going through. My goal in writing the book that I'm writing and for the people that are on this journey is that they'll receive spiritual strength to fill the areas of loss and pain and renew their view of what truly is happening in their life and around them. What's really happening? Just as Gideon, you can become a mighty warrior if you'll leave your hiding place. Now listen to me. If you will leave your hiding place of hurt and fear and anger and depression and discouragement, Remember David, the one who said his throne, or God said his throne would be an everlasting throne? David was revered by the nations and feared by his enemies. Did you know that David wrestled with the same things that all of us have had to wrestle with? Listen to what it says in Psalm 13. I was reading this the other morning, and I, I hadn't had this in this chapter, but I thought, I've got to put that in here. David says this, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Did he feel discouragement? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Have you ever said that? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Did he, did he feel like God was not speaking to him? Yes. Heaven, heaven was like brass to him. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him. And my fools rejoice when I fall. But then he comes back to his senses and he writes, Ah, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. You see the, see the change from the beginning to the last verse? The flesh was speaking in the beginning, the Spirit spoke at the end. Sometimes the best thing that you can do uh, is, is pray in the Spirit. 
Because out of your flesh, nothing's coming good, but the Spirit always sees the positive. Okay, I got just a little bit more. Um, I want to give you a little bit of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Most of you are aware of this. If somebody hasn't heard it, well, just take it for a grain of salt. I, I graduated from Bible college in 78, and my first church was in 1980. I married my wife in the same year as I graduated, my graduation and for the last 42 years, I've been a pastor. I've had churches in a number of cities. We've, Me and my wife have been blessed to see a lot of people come to Christ under our ministry. But now I want to say what now I feel about all that. God has been awesome and faithful to us on the entire trip. In 42 years, he's never left us. I love the Lord with all my heart and am aware that he feels the same about me. But I've learned one thing, and I, I remember Sister Norris saying this in our third-year class. She said, uh, kids, he called us kids. Well, she was 80-some years old. She said this, the more I learn about God, I've lived for him all my life, the more I realize there's so much about him I don't know. And when you start questioning God, what you're really saying is that you've learned everything there is to know about him and you can't understand him. Just when you feel that you, you have a handle on this Christian lifestyle, <laughs> this is true, God changes the, the course of your life. Just when you think you've got it figured out. He upsets the apple cart of the familiar and he challenges you to know him in a completely new dimension. Most people I meet do not like change. I'm married to a person like that and are perfectly content to live a normal, uneventful existence. Isn't that true? I'm content just to live a normal, uneventful existence. I've learned that spiritual growth grows up from the soil of struggle. This is easily seen in the early church as it spread across the known world, enduring great persecution and suffering. It seemed for every Christian that was killed, ten more Christians sprang up. The water revivals only became hot when the fires of persecution, struggle, and suffering were turned up. I really believe this. And I say that, and I stop here, because as uh, persecution increases in this nation and it becomes harder and harder to enjoy the freedoms of our faith, God's revival will also heat up. Now, I know that we have revivals that pop up amidst us and they burn bright, but in most cases, they, they settle down, back down to mediocrity. In this book, I want to focus on the fire and the effects of Christ's life, his life has upon us, our independent lives, but also on our collective lives as the church body. I do not claim, or would I, that I'm an expert in this field, but I do claim to have more association with struggle and pain than what may be experienced, considered normal. Pops, possibly like you, I've lifted up my hands to God asking why God have all these things come upon me. 
I want you to think about what I'm saying next because you've been where I was and my wife. My wife and I have on many occasions shed our tears on the cushions of our couch. However, let me state this from the very beginning. Every hardship, every struggle, every tear was worth the growth in our relationship with our Creator. Everything was worth it. Whether it was the loss of someone we loved or the betrayal of someone we trusted or for that matter, the countless struggles with our health. I can honestly say that, say, and my wife would agree, that it brought us to a higher dimension in our relationship with God. I think that if you were to ask if I had a specialty area in my life, I would quickly answer, it would be with those who are suffering. From early on in my ministry, I've worked in hospital chaplaincy. I've, had an, I've been, uh, as an employee of healthcare system, worked in cancer units and patient hospice facilities and home hospice as well. I've been with mothers and dads as they have lost a newborn child in an emergency room where I stood by parents who held the lifeless bodies of their children. These events have changed me and my heart has more than once been overwhelmed with, and unless you've ever been there, you won't understand this terminology, was shared grief. Shared grief. Whether it was a spouse who looked with unbelief at their young partner asking the question that has rung through the ages, why God? Seeking some reason to justify the loss. And I'll close with this uh, I have to read this paragraph. I was going to skip it. It's the last one. I know you're really getting tired. <laughs> I'm trying not to beleaguer this. There's another side of the coin that needs to be addressed as well. It's the miraculous side of God. Mark 16 and 16. It mentions that you shall pray for the sick and they shall recover. Why is it that God heals some and not others? Really, if God is no respecter of persons and he loves everyone alike, why do some receive a healing and others who prayed as hard or harder remain in suffering, I, I intend in this book to be very open and transparent. I like you, I like you have questioned God at the bedside of a family member, pleading with God to touch the diseased body, as He has done to countless others, and restore to me the one I love. And there's this is where I'll close. My brother doesn't really share this story too much. Um, I don't know if I've ever heard him share it here, but shortly after we were saved. Um, God just moved in our family. Rick, Rick came to church and then he brought me to church and then started to work with my dad and it went from my dad to my mom and it was just like a fire. It was just going from person to person to my sister. But right after me and him were saved and my dad got saved, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. That was at 50, I think it was about 50 years old, 49 or 50 years old. He had, they, they diagnosed him with lung cancer. And um, it was such that they had to take out most of one of his lungs. They left a small portion of the lung, but they took out most of it. And we, when we came into the church, we were told, you know, we have to be careful. We said, hey, God's a healer. God, take care of you. No problems when you come in here and you give your heart to God. It's peachy keen, just really cool. God, take care of you all your life. But here we came in, me and my brother, we came in from a Lutheran background, sort of like a mongrel background, we went to whatever church was shortest in service. 
But here we were, we thought that this couldn't happen. Yeah, he's only 49, 50 years old, and he, he's dying. I'll never forget, Russ. Me and him went into the living room of my parents' house. It's etched upon my mind, and I'm sure it's in my brother's mind. And we got down on our knees, just brand new Christians. We, this was all new to us. We, I don't think we ever prayed on our knees. We might have when we were little kids, but we, this was all new. And here we wrestled with God, brand new Christians, just months on the couch, crying and pleading with God to spare our dad. It seemed for a while that he got worse. And then all of a sudden, he's up. And within a few months, he's back to work driving a truck. He'd have to wear a mask when it was cold outside, you know, all that stuff. And we rejoiced. Thank you, Jesus. But then, a few years later, it came back. And he died. And we thought... Why did you do that? Why did you let him come back and then take him so we'd have to go through it all again? Do you know what happened during the seven years after God revived him from that initial cancer bout? He helped establish a church in Wisconsin Dells with our family. The church that Brother Mackey pastored, there was a beautiful church if you ever got out there. Now it's sort of changed But God brought him back because he said, I'll bring him back, but only if there's a purpose. If you're here tonight, if you're living and breathing and blinking your eyes, the only reason that you're here and God hasn't taken you, I want you to listen, because you have a purpose to fulfill. There are people that you are going to touch And these people are going to be unique unto you. They're people that only you and what you've gone through can reach. My ministry, I recognize, is with people that are suffering. Those are the people that I think I can reach. But you're different. If you're alive, you're here to serve and to fulfill your purpose. And how do I know that's true? Because the Bible says that. Oh, it does, Brother Kylie. Where does it say that? Aha, I knew you were going to ask that. Paul said before he died, just before his head was chopped off and he knew he was going to die, he says, I have finished my course. I have finished my race. And now I know there's a, hell, a crown held in store for me, and not only me, but all those whose love is appearing. But what did Paul say? I finished my purpose, and now God is going to take me out of the drama of life. No one dies until they finish their purpose. If someone died, and I, I, though this is a broad thing to say, this is the way I look at it, and we've lost people in church, more than likely, they finished their purpose. And God said, okay, good job. Well done and thou good and faithful servant. And we have to be willing to say they've received the promotion that God has 
is granted them. But my flesh doesn't say that. My flesh cries, snots, grieves. Yeah, that's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. But my flesh, my spirit rejoices. So that's a little bit of where we're starting. That was just the foreword. So (laughs) I don't know whether God's going to lead me to go on with, with what's already written. I'm almost done with the book. But I wanted, I felt like God wanted me to share that tonight. Because I want you to look at the things you're going through completely differently. If our church goes through a struggle, I want you to say, yes! Revival! Like little kids, because life always comes through struggle. Let's stand together. What is that scripture? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and what? What does he do? He knows them that trust in him. So trust in him tonight. No matter what you might go through, you may not be going through anything tonight, but it may be that the Lord had me speak tonight because someone may be entering into something and they're going to need this strength. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you speak to your people, Lord Jesus. And tonight I I pray for every person in this room, those that may hear this from listening to it online, But Lord, I pray that we can somehow look beyond our circumstance. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at AbundantLifeChurch.org.